Well, friends, we are back this morning after a couple of week hiatus in the book of Jonah. This is a part of a summer in the minor prophets for us here at CBC. And if you have not been with us for the sermons up to now, that content is online. If you're that kind of person that enjoys listening to sermon audio, I leave that to you. But I will aim here in just a few moments to catch us up as to where we have been. So if this is your first sermon in the series, don't sweat it too much. Everybody in this room, I trust, who has been to a few church services is probably familiar with the book of Jonah. We can thank flannel boards and Bible story books for that knowledge because we are aware, if nothing else, we are aware of the story of Jonah and the great fish. And as we saw two weeks ago, the story of Jonah and the great fish is about far more than we maybe ever surmised, and we have been in some ways distracted from the real point of this entire book of Jonah because of our fascination and fixation on large fish and whether or not a person could dwell there for three days. If you already uh, have your Bibles, you may already be in Jonah chapter 3, but if not, I invite you to turn there. If you don't have a Bible with you, we will get the words to the sermon text on the screen. We'll be considering, excuse me, Jonah 3, 1 to 10 today. While you're turning there, let me do what I promised. I'm going to try to catch us up briefly in terms of where we have been in this book so far. The book of Jonah begins with the Lord coming to his prophet and commissioning him to go to Nineveh commissioning him to go to this capital city of the Assyrian Empire to preach a message of impending judgment and repentance. Jonah, for his part, fled from the presence of the Lord, or at least tried to. The Lord relentlessly then pursued Jonah, bringing some mariners to faith as he did so. The Lord then appointed a great fish to swallow Jonah, and there, in the belly of the fish for three days and three nights, is where God brought Jonah to repentance. We considered that all of this, especially the fish part, happened as it did because Jesus Christ was coming to save his people. The Lord, in his earthly ministry, refers to the account of Jonah as a historical reality, refers to the fact that Jonah was in the belly of the fish for three days and three nights, and says that just like that, the Son of Man will be in the heart of the earth for three days and three nights. We considered how the Lord Jesus Christ, upon his death, descended to hell to conquer it, to bind the strong man who is the devil, to plunder his goods, to crush the serpent's head and rescue his people. And then the Lord Jesus ascended in victory, having conquered. And so, whom the Son sets free will be free indeed. This is why we're here today. This is why we're going to look to the book of Jonah yet again today. So with all of that by way of introduction and catching us up, let's look to Jonah chapter 3. Listen as I read. This is the word of God. Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it the message that I tell you. So, 
Jonah arose and went to Nineveh, according to the word of the Lord. Now Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, three days' journey in breadth. Jonah began to go into the city, going a day's journey. And he called out, Yet forty days, and Nineveh will be overthrown. And the people of Nineveh believed God. They called for a fast and put on sackcloth from the greatest of them to the least of them. The word reached the king of Nineveh, and he arose from his throne, removed his robe, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat in ashes. And he issued a proclamation and published through Nineveh, by the decree of the king and his nobles, let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock, taste anything. Let them not feed or drink water, but let man and beast be covered with sackcloth, and let them call out mightily to God. Let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hands. Who knows? God may turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. When God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he had said he would do to them. And he did not do it. Amen. We thank God for his word today and every day. My plan for the rest of our time this morning is to first survey the passage. We often do this in narrative texts. We'll walk our way through it, make sure we understand what's going on. And then I will have three points for our deeper consideration. First, I want us to think through God's relenting of the disaster that he said he would bring upon Nineveh. How do we understand that? So that's one. Second, we're going to do a deep dive on Jonah, God's grace to him and through him. Thirdly, we'll consider Nineveh and God's grace to those people, followed by a conclusion. I'll try to make it plain where we are. If you didn't get all that down, don't worry about it. We're going to look at the text first. So you can put your eyes now on verse 1. Notice there that the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time. Remember that the word of the Lord had come to Jonah the first time. Just hold on to that. The Lord commissions Jonah to Nineveh again. He commissions him to go do the same thing that he had commissioned him to do the first time. And the Lord then says to Jonah, I'm going to give you the message that you are to preach. That's verses 1 and 2. In verse 3, Jonah arises and goes to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. He obeys the word of the Lord. God be praised. We're going to talk about that. The author then tells us that Nineveh was a great city. We've thought about this a decent bit already. It was the last capital city of the Assyrian Empire before it fell to the Babylonians in 612 BC. It was large enough, according to the account here, that to visit it you needed three days. This is very similar to how we would talk about like New York City. Like, hey, if you're going to go there, you need to plan to stay for days if you're going to see it. It's that big in scope. Same is true of Nineveh many, many centuries ago. Like other ancient cities, there would have been a, a large metro area. There would have been the walled portion of the city, but then even outside of that would have been areas for agriculture. 
where many people dwelled as well. So when we think about the city of Nineveh, we're talking about a very large metro population. Verse 4, Jonah heads into what we might call greater Nineveh. He goes a day's journey, and then he begins to preach the message that the Lord told him. And the message that the Lord told him is summarized for us in these words, yet 40 days and Nineveh shall be overthrown. We trust that this is a summary of what Jonah would have preached. Very similar to other passages in the text of the scriptures where we are given what we need to know. But we're going to find out later on that these pagan people had a knowledge of God and the fact that God was the one who had sent this prophet and that they should call mightily out to him. So Jonah is preaching the message that the Lord gave him of impending judgment and a call to repentance. Remember in all of this that Nineveh was not just a large, vast city. It was a wicked one. Notoriously so. The Lord had said that in Jonah chapter 1 and verse 2. Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. It's an evil city. The prophet Nahum spilt ink on the wickedness of Nineveh as well. The Assyrians, again remember Nineveh, capital city of the Assyrian Empire. The Assyrians were known for their fearsome army, but they were known for being cruel and ruthless warriors. You can do a Google search this afternoon and that will pop up immediately for you. And it was the city of Nineveh, according to Nahum the prophet, a city filled with immorality of a seductive and deceiving nature. Verse 5. So this is the context. The prophet has obeyed. He's gone to the vast, wicked city. He's preached a word. And then verse 5. This first sentence of verse 5 is remarkable. We think about the fish part. Jonah surviving there, bordering on the miraculous. You want to talk about a miracle? Look at this sentence. And the people of Nineveh believed God. Let's let that sit. This wicked city, the people of Nineveh believed God. Some of them? No. All of them. Look at what it says. They call for a fast and put on sackcloth from the greatest of them to the least of them. The language of the Ninevites believing God is significant. This should ring bells for you. For example, Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. This pagan people, this capital city of perhaps the greatest empire on earth at the time, with its own gods and its own ethic, believed the word of the Lord. God did a work in these people. At the preaching of his message, he caused them to believe that word. At the heart of it, friends, that is repentance. You understand that. At the heart of repentance is to believe God. 
It is to agree with God about a number of things, albeit true. The beginning of knowledge, the beginning of wisdom is what? To fear the Lord. At the heart of repentance is to agree with God about who he is and to agree with God about who and what we are. To agree with God about his holy law and what it requires of man. To assess ourselves rightly in the mirror of that law. To see how far short we come. To then turn to the one who can save wretches like us in faith. That is repentance. And at the heart of that is to believe God. The people believed and then they acted out of that belief. They call for a fast and they put on sackcloth. These were common practices of mourning in the ancient Near East. This is nothing short of immediate citywide repentance. It is astonishing. We'll think more about that later. In verses 6 to 8 of the account, the word that Jonah preached, we already know that it's reached the greatest and the least of the city, but it has reached the king as well. He too repents, agrees with God. He gets off of his throne, takes off, of his, off his clothes, and then puts on sackcloth and sits in ashes. He issues a proclamation and publishes a decree throughout the entire metro area. No animal, no man is to eat or drink. People and animals are to be covered in sackcloth. They are to call out mightily to God. Everyone is to, quote, turn from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hands, close quote. Precisely the things that the Ninevites were known for. Evil ways, violence, turn from it. That's the decree of the king. In verse 9, at the end of the king's decree, what interesting words to put at the end of a king's order. He says, who knows, maybe, God will relent and won't destroy us. He just might not do what he said. Verse 10. When the Lord sees what the Ninevites did, when he sees that they repented, he then relents of the disaster that he had said he would bring. And the final words of our account today, and he did not do it. The Lord in his mercy spared the city. It's a remarkable text. So our first point of further consideration is to think together about the fact that God relented from the disaster that he had said he would bring on Nineveh. It's clear that he did relent. We're going to talk about how it's possible for him to do that, given that he's holy and righteous at the end of our time today. But right now, I want us to think about this in a different sense. The Lord had said he would do something, and then he relented of doing it. A few questions that we want to ask ourselves today. 
Does the Lord find himself in situations where he does not know what will happen? Because people read things like this in the scripture and ask questions like that. Well, had he said he was going to destroy the city, not knowing whether they would turn or not, not knowing whether they would repent or not, and then, based upon human action, God changes. He backpedals on what he had said he would do. Does he find himself in situations where he does not know what will happen? Legit question. Another one. Does he find himself, God, find himself in situations where he had a plan, but then he has to change plans because things have somehow gotten out of his control? Or another question. Did God at one point think one way about a thing and then change his mind? Kind of like we do. It's like, well, I used to think this way about this, but now I've changed my view on it. Is that how the Lord operates? I trust you're sitting out there and you're thinking through these questions and each one you're thinking, well, no, no, and no, those things do not hold biblically. God is not man that he should lie or a son of man that he should change his mind. Has he said and he will not do it or has he spoken and will he not fulfill it? Numbers 23 and 19. I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is none like me declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times things not yet done, saying, my counsel shall stand, and I will accomplish all my purpose. Isaiah 46. His dominion is an everlasting dominion, and his kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing, and he does according to his will among the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth, and none can stay his hand or say to him, what have you done? Now, while all of this is above us, these things are things that we cannot completely and exhaustively understand. We are on the right track when we remember the following. Just four thoughts for us. One, the Lord transcends time and space. And yet, he meaningfully interacts with his creatures in time and space. That's one. Two. The Lord, in revealing himself to us, accommodates himself to our capacity. He condescends in order to reveal himself. He speaks through his prophets to us in ways that we can understand. Thirdly. The Lord clearly, undebatably, unequivocally has a sovereign will and sovereign purposes that will not and cannot be thwarted. Four, the Lord is a God of means, not just ends. The Lord is a God of means, not just ends. Ends. He arranges and governs all things according to his wise and holy providence. 
so that through various means and through various agencies and secondary and tertiary causes and all of those things, he accomplishes every single good and holy purpose he has. Here in our text, just take it for an example. The Lord warned Nineveh through Jonah of what would happen should they not repent. And it is clear that the Lord had ordained Nineveh's repentance to occur through that very preaching of that very prophet. And God chooses to carry out his own plan in a way that comports with human response. These things are in no way contradictory. I want us to move on now to consider the prophet Jonah. We will spend the bulk of our time here today. We're going to think about the prophet. Maybe not the bulk of our time, a good bit of time. I want us to think about Jonah and I want us to think about God's grace to him and God's grace through him. So God had appointed and chosen Jonah to be a prophet. That is no small thing in and of itself. The word of the Lord had come to Jonah and he had commissioned Jonah to go to Nineveh. Jonah, as we've already considered briefly today, fled. He acted in what can only be called outright defiance. He was disobedient. God told him what to do and he did the exact opposite. Like quite literally. Ran the other way. God said go to Nineveh which would have been for you over here and dude gets on a boat to sail across the Mediterranean Sea this way. The Lord, of course, pursued. So think of God's grace in this man's life. The Lord pursued relentlessly. He would not, hear this, he would not leave Jonah to his own devices. Jonah had intentions. Jonah had plans. Jonah had desires. Jonah had fears. Jonah had all that. He meant to do things. And God would not leave him to himself. So see in this account of God dealing with Jonah, the account of the loving discipline of a heavenly father who will not leave his children, even in the face of their blatant and intentional disobedience. God will not be thwarted. I don't know about anybody else, but that is a good word to me today. Even in the face of our abject foolishness, the Lord is not deterred. Now Jonah, for his part, even as God is coming after him, and he knows it, based on what he says to the sailors, he knows in part, this is God's doing, but he's so dug in. He's so hard of heart that rather than sailing, saying to the sailors, excuse me, talking to the mariners because they're all about to die in a raging sea, instead of saying, you know, I have sinned, guys. I have sinned against the Lord. I need to go to Nineveh. We need to turn around. Rather than saying that, he says, you know what? Just kill me. Just kill me. 
Throw me overboard. Bro's heart is hard. He would rather die than return to the Lord and go to Nineveh. Death seems simpler, easier, and better maybe than turning to the Lord in repentance. That's pretty serious. In Jonah, see yourself. How blind can we be? Which is why there are words in the scriptures like these. Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. We need each other. We need to exhort one another. We need to speak truth to each other every day that's called today, lest we, in our folly and our blindness, be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. But again, we come back to the Lord and his faithfulness. In all of this, Jonah says, kill me. Throw me overboard. But God is not deterred. You realize if Jonah had not been swallowed by the fish, the man would die and he would drown. So God, rather than allowing that to happen, appoints the great fish to swallow the prophet and there brings him to repentance. Now, Jonah as has been said by others, is vomited out onto the shore by this great fish dripping in self-righteousness. Yes, he's repented, but given how blatantly disobedient this man has been, surely he should no longer be a prophet. Right? Not anymore. He's disqualified himself, has he not? from being a prophet? Now, you, you realize that's how you and I would operate, right? This man ain't fit to be a prophet. Look at him. Look how disobedient he was to God. But praise God, he is not like us. He does something different. The Lord in our text today comes to him, verse 1, comes to him a second time and commissions him again like he had done the first time. Don't let that be missed. That God came back a second time to commission his wayward and now repentant prophet. Beloved, this is how God is. See his character, his love, his patience with us. He is long-suffering. He continues to bear with his people in our failings in order to accomplish his purposes in us and through us. The scriptures are filled with examples of this. We'll take one. You guys have heard of a man named Peter, one of the apostles. Peter, most in the room know, denied the Lord Jesus Christ three times in one overnight right before Christ was going to die. And this was, mind you, this denial of the Lord three times was in the immediate aftermath of Peter having boldly pronounced that though everyone else would fall away from Jesus, he never would. Surely, Peter, 
through his denial, not once, not twice, but three times, had disqualified himself from future service, right? Surely, the Lord was done with him. Surely, he at least is done in terms of the remote possibility of him being an apostle. John chapter 21. You remember this account? After the resurrection of the Lord Jesus? He reveals himself to Peter and several of the disciples. They were out fishing. And Jesus calls to them and ends up inviting them to come have breakfast on the shore with him. That in and of itself is a sweet depiction. And after they eat, Jesus and Peter have a conversation. Jesus asks Peter three times, corresponding, right, to his three denials, three times, Simon, son of John, do you love me? To which each time, more or less, Peter responds, yes, Lord, you know I love you. The last time he says, Lord, you know everything. You know I love you. To which Jesus says what? Feed my sheep. Jesus commissioned Peter, the very one who had denied him three times, to then go and feed the sheep of his pasture. It's the kind of God he is. It's because he had purposes for Peter. You remember in Luke's account of Peter's denial that Jesus looks at Peter and tells him that you're going to do this. Satan asked that he might have you, that he might sift you like wheat, but I have prayed for you. And when you have been restored, strengthen your brothers. Amen. Back to Jonah. This time, the second time, when the Lord comes to Jonah, Jonah goes to Nineveh. And like I said earlier, God be praised that he went. Now his obedience, it's not perfect. His heart is not where it should be. That will become very clear beginning in chapter 4 and verse 1. Because in the aftermath of God doing a great work of saving a city, Jonah is upset. So he's not in a right frame of mind completely, but he went. Don't miss that. So here's a brief interjection. My concern for us sometimes in the contemporary church is that we are informed more by philosophical notions and like Immanuel Kant when it comes to thinking about good works. Meaning, if it's not perfect, it doesn't count. Now, if we were thinking about obedience for righteousness, you would be correct in saying that. But we obey from faith. Does it matter what's going on in our hearts? Yes. Does it matter what's going on in our minds? Yes. And it is always good to do what God commands. Full stop. Because of the corruption that remains in us, everything we do will be tainted with sin. If we dive down the black hole of trying to discern every single jot and tittle of my motivation, our motivation in any deed, we will paralyze ourselves. We do what the Lord says is good, and we abstain from what he says is evil. It's quite simple. We obey not for righteousness, we obey from faith. So when we are wrestling internally, let me just depict this for a second. When we're wrestling internally, and it goes something like this. All right, this is what 
God says in his word and I believe him that it's good. But I'm struggling. My heart is all over the place. I mean, it's a bag of cats in there, man. There's a part of me, my flesh, that frankly right now does not like what God's word says. There's a part of me, my flesh, that wants no part of what God is calling me to right now. This is what's going on inside, right? But, talking to ourselves, I believe God. I believe God. And so I'm going to do what he says is good. Saints, you realize that that very wrestling and that very decision to do what God says is good is faith. And then, having imperfectly but sincerely said, I'm going to do what God says is good, even though I'm divided, we pray something like this. Father, help me. Give me grace. Continue to conform my will to yours. Continue to cause me to hate what's evil and to hold fast to what's good. Lead me in your paths. Guide me in your truth and teach me, for you are the God of my salvation, and in you I hope all the day long. That's what we pray. So Jonah went. God be praised. He goes to Nineveh. He preaches. And God did a thing. He brings a city to repentance through the word of his prophet. Through the word of his prophet, mind you, whose heart was a mess and whose mind was off. The Lord uses some broken vessels and he draws some straight lines with really crooked sticks. It's what he does. At this point, we're going to talk about some more things. We're still thinking about Jonah. These are things that we don't always have opportunity to consider, and it's good that we would think through these things as a congregation. I'm about to front load these comments with this. We are to pursue righteousness. Amen? Amen. Character matters when it comes to God's ministers. Amen? There are qualifications for elders in the scripture. That is without debate. There are qualifications for men to serve God's church as pastors and as preachers and teachers of his word and leaders of his flock. If a pastor has disqualifying sins in his life, he should step down. Nothing that I am about to say should be understood to contradict any of that. We good? We're good. All right. Jonah 2.9. Salvation belongs to the Lord. You remember that word, that phrase? Well, it most certainly does. And part of what that means is that it is the Lord is the one who does the saving. He uses, remember he's a God of means, not just ends. He uses the preaching of his word through human instruments of his choosing. But regarding those human instruments, the best thing that we can say about those instruments, one, they're sinners who have been saved by Jesus Christ who are trusting in him for righteousness and the forgiveness of their sins. And secondly, at best, they are merely conduits of God's magnificent grace. It is God who does the saving, who grants faith, who grants repentance. It's God who sanctifies his people. 
Now, should preachers work to prepare good sermons? Yes, they should. Should preachers work at honing the craft of preaching? Yes, we should. And what matters, beloved, is that God's word, the word of Christ, is being heralded, is being preached. The whole counsel of God is being proclaimed because God's word will do the work. Consider this passage. So in my, just so you guys know, in my crosshairs, I have the wreckage that is revivals and revivalism in the United States, in the church. Think about this text, because well-meaning people say things all the time that sound holy, that are whack about God working in the history of his church, and that what gives a movement its power is the personal religious experience of its preachers. With all due respect, look to the scripture. Jonah's preaching and the repentance of Nineveh. You want to talk about a revival? Nothing that has ever happened in North America has anything on this. An entire city? A capital city? Of the most powerful empire on the planet? Repenting? Turning to God? And God did it through a prophet who had been blatantly disobedient, whose heart was not where it should have been, who after the great work of God happens is upset that Nineveh has been saved. God does the work. He uses broken vessels and crooked sticks. Which is good news, by the way, because if he did not do that, then we would be without hope. Because all of God's appointed preachers are sinners, weak, who sometimes, when they preach, are thinking simultaneous to what's coming out of our mouths. We're thinking, Lord, give me faith to believe the words that I'm speaking. I believe, but help my unbelief, even as I seek to be used of you to encourage these dear people in your son. What's the point of all of that, beloved? Like, if I'm going to drive it down on a wedge, why talk about that? It's that God is a redeemer. It's that he is gracious and he is merciful. He is mighty to save. He is the author of salvation. He is the Savior, and salvation belongs to him. So look to him and marvel. Marvel at the grace of God that he has showered upon sinners like us and upon sinners like Jonah, his prophet. So that's Jonah. We're now going to relatively briefly consider Nineveh. Everybody doing okay? Everybody's all right. Good. Let's consider briefly God's grace to this people. Think of what Nineveh was. Think of what it represented. Evil, violence, seduction, all those things. And think of how these people would have lived for that to be said of their city. Listen to these words from the prophet Nahum very briefly regarding Nineveh. Woe to the bloody city all full of lies and plunder. There is no end to the prey 
horsemen charging, flashing sword and glittering spear, hosts of slain, heaps of corpses, dead bodies without end. They stumble over the bodies. And all for the countless whorings of the prostitute, graceful and of deadly charms, who betrays nations with her whorings and peoples with her charms. Such is the prophet's estimation inspired of the Spirit of God regarding this city. And God granted them repentance. This too is who he is. He is the one who justifies the godly? Not so much, because there aren't any. He justifies the ungodly. He is the one who takes dead, enslaved, disobedient children of wrath and makes them alive together with Jesus Christ. The Lord is the one who said, through the prophet Isaiah, to his own wicked, disobedient people, the following, Come now, let us reason together. Though your sins are like scarlet, they will be as white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall become like wool. The Lord has always planned to save ungodly sinners from every tribe, language, people, and nation. And we too, like the Jews in Acts 11, should glorify God and say, to the Gentiles also, God has granted repentance that leads to life. God's grace is marvelous. We sing of it. Grace that exceeds our sin and our guilt. Grace that changes lepers' spots and melts hearts of stone. It's effective grace. Grace that turns hard-hearted, wicked sinners to Christ in faith. Grace that causes hard-hearted, wicked sinners to agree with God. Your grace that leads this sinner home from death to life forever and sings the song of righteousness by blood and not by merit. Now over the decades following this great work of God, it is true that Nineveh would fall back into sin. And Nineveh would eventually be destroyed as a measure of God's judgment. All that's true. And you know what else is true? God accomplished his purposes in the lives of these Ninevites at this time. The last thing I want us to consider today is this. The people of Nineveh deserve judgment. We all deserve judgment. And so how is it that God can relent of such a thing, given that he always does what's right? Now, to even make a broad sweeping statement like the people of Nineveh, without distinction, without exception, deserve God's judgment, that makes people squirm. To make a broad sweeping statement like all humans, without exception, deserve judgment, makes people really uncomfortable. I mean, I don't assume, I don't assume that there aren't people in this very room 
who might be made uncomfortable by such a statement. Like, really? Every single person? But beloved, try as we might to deny objective good and evil, we can't. We cannot escape it. I'll give you an example. Take the humanities professor at your favorite liberal arts college. This professor who waxes eloquent about morality as a social construct. This professor who peddles nonsense with tenure about self-discovery and celebrating every single kind of desire. That very professor at some point will walk into his own real-life holocaust. And there, though he knows the repercussions of such a proclamation, he can't help but cry out, this is evil. And by that he does not mean it's evil, like I think it's evil, but you can think it's good. He doesn't mean that. And he would be outraged in that moment if justice were not meted out against those who had committed such evil. We cannot escape it. There is objective good. There is objective evil. It stands in the world. Every human knows it. Why? Because God's law is a thing. God's moral law stands. It was written into humanity at creation. It is binding on all men. It was summarized in Ten Commandments and written on two tablets of stone. It is that same law that is God's standard of righteousness. That every human being, Jew and Gentile alike, bears witness to. It's Paul's argument in Romans 2. That Jews are under the law, but even those who were without the law condemn themselves because this law is written in their hearts. This same law is God's standard of righteousness and it requires perfect, personal, perpetual obedience. You either meet that standard or you don't. And anyone who has not done that perfect personal, perpetual obedience deserves judgment. Wrath from the one who made us all. The one whose brightness makes the stars look dark. The one in whose sight even the heavens aren't pure. The one whose righteousness the angels themselves can't bear. And then we have the Ninevites in our passage. The Ninevites in our passage. And the Lord did not act in judgment against a people like that who without doubt deserved it. Now, lest we become inoculated to mercy and grace, the justice meter that we've all got, as ill-informed as it may be, that thing ought to be blowing up in your head 
and in your heart. How is that okay? How? How is that fair? God is a just and impartial judge, he says. Just meaning he always pronounces just verdicts. He's always right and righteous in what he decides. Impartial meaning there ain't no favoritism here. There are no exceptions to this. Nobody gets a solid, right? How can he let evil people, lawbreakers, how can he let them walk? He can let them walk because before time and space, God the Father and God the Son made a covenant to rescue such lawbreakers. Those people, those lawbreakers would be saved by God the Son through what he alone would do as their representative. Through what he alone would do as their substitute. Now I'm mindful of time and we're going to turn briefly to a couple of passages. I'm not going to read them, I'm going to comment. Listen attentively because in these texts we will find our salvation. These are words of eternal life. Isaiah chapter 50. If you have a Bible, you can turn there. I think we're going to put them on the screen. I remembered late in the game and ran them back there to Ryan while we were singing. So I, I think we're good. Isaiah 50, 1 to 7. The first couple of verses begin by God reiterating the sin and the corruption of his people, Israel. Talking about how they were sold for their iniquities, for their transgressions. But then he says in the second part of verse 2, is my hand shortened that it can't redeem? In spite of all that, is my hand shortened that I can't redeem? Or have I no power to deliver? Behold, by my rebuke I dry up the sea. I make the rivers a desert. Their fish stink for lack of water and die of thirst. I clothe the heavens with blackness and make sackcloth their covering. In other words, my hand ain't short to save. I've got plenty of power to deliver. I'm the Lord. I do all things. Then, verse 4, we get the servant of the Lord, Jesus, speaking, right? The pre-incarnate Christ. The Lord God has given me the tongue of those who are taught that I may know how to, to, to sustain with a word him who is weary. You weary? Morning by morning he awakens. He awakens my ear to hear as those who are taught. The Lord God has opened my ear and I was not rebellious. I turned not backward. Unlike Jonah, unlike us, I gave my back to those who strike and my cheeks to those who pull out the beard. That would happen. I hid not my face from disgrace and spitting. That would happen. But the Lord God helps me. Therefore I have not been disgraced. Therefore I have set my face like a flint. Luke 9, 51. He set his face and turned to Jerusalem to die. And I know that I shall not be put to shame, says the Lord Jesus Christ. Why? The Holy One would not be allowed to see corruption. He would descend to hell and conquer and would rise victorious. Romans 3, beginning in verse 10. You're familiar with these verses. They're strong. Paul is citing Psalms. He's citing Proverbs. He's citing Isaiah to say... In a word, there is not a single human being, a son or daughter of Adam, 
who is righteous on this planet. There's not one. Really, Paul? Not one? Nope, not even one, he says. Nobody does good. Nobody's a seeker for God. All we're good at is shedding blood. All we're good at is destroying people with the venom that's under our tongues. We don't know peace, and we don't fear God. This is the conclusion of an argument. Verse 19, now we know that whatever the law, that same law says, it speaks to those who are under it. That's everybody. So that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. The whole world held accountable. For by works of the law, no flesh, no human being will be justified in his sight since through the law comes knowledge of sin. The first use of the law is to crush us in our sin. But you ready for some good news? Here it comes. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction. Here we go again. All have sinned. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, fallen short of that law, and are justified, declared just in God's sight by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. And here we go. Whom God put forward as a propitiation, a satisfaction for sin. How can lawbreakers go free? Because their debt was paid, their wrath satisfied, their punishment taken by a representative. He's put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. We don't achieve, we receive what Christ has done. This was to show God's righteousness. Because in his divine forbearance he had passed over former sins. There were people who had lived long ago who were sinning. People who had lived before Christ whom God was saving. For goodness sakes. How is this possible? It's because Christ was coming. The propitiation, the sacrifice, the offering was coming. Verse 26. It was to show his righteousness at the present time, says Paul. First century. So that he might be just, upright, and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. The great riddle of the Old Testament, right? I am the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious and slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, showing steadfast love to thousands, forgiving iniquity, transgression, and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty? How? Christ the representative, the substitute. On a Friday afternoon 2,000 years ago, he was hung on a tree. He had already lived a life of perfect fulfillment and perfect conformity to God's law. He had never sinned. He had fulfilled every one of God's requirements for righteousness. Yet, he was hung on a tree which was only reserved for people who were cursed. Cursed is everyone who's hung on a tree. The perfect law keeper, the righteous man of Psalm 1 who meditated on God's law day and night was hung as a cursed man on a tree for what? 
for us. He took our sin, our corruption upon himself, and he bore our sins in his body on the tree. He took the wrath of God in full and shielded sinners. As our substitute and as our representative, he stood before the wrath of God, shielding sinners with his blood. Rock of ages, cleft for me. Let me hide myself in thee. And so, with us, as with the people of Nineveh in our passage today, God looks upon Christ and relents of the disaster that we deserve. He looks upon us on account of Christ and delivers. And in light of that, beloved, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. Amen.